This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we're discussing changes and what they might mean. Cuba installed new visa policies this week that will make it easier to leave the island. What will come of that change? And although the United States is about to inaugurate Barack Obama as president for a second time, will this new term mean change for Obama's Latin American policies? We'll search for answers. But first, Kurt Devine is here with more on that new Cuban travel policy and our weekly review of news from around Latin America. A new law in Cuba eases travel restrictions by allowing citizens to travel abroad without purchasing expensive exit visas. Thousands of Cubans lined up outside of migration offices this week to apply for passports, the only documents now required to leave the country aside from basic ID cards. The law comes as one of the most far-reaching reforms enacted by President Raul Castro since he replaced his brother Fidel in 2006. U.S. State Department spokesperson Victoria Newland spoke about the reform. The United States welcomes any reforms that allow Cubans to depart from and return to their country freely, which is obviously a right that's provided to everyone under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to be able to come and go from your own country or any other country. We are also committed to safe, legal, and orderly migration from Cuba to the U.S. in accordance with our bilateral agreements of 1994 and 1995. The U.S. government still grants legal residency upon request to any Cuban who reaches U.S. soil. We'll have more on this reform later in this program. Colombia's largest rebel group will end a two-month ceasefire and resume military operations against the Colombian government this weekend. The announcement comes as peace talks between the FARC rebel group and Colombian authorities continue this week in Cuba. Officials fear new attacks from the FARC will complicate the negotiations and prolong the half-century conflict, which centers on land ownership and agrarian reform. President Juan Manuel Santos said the peace talks must produce results by November of this year or the government will end the negotiations. Venezuelan Vice President Nicolas Maduro gave a short State of the Nation address this week in place of President Hugo Chavez, who remains hospitalized in Cuba. Maduro submitted an address in writing from Chavez, but members of Venezuela's opposition party argue that the speech should have been postponed. Chavez has not spoken publicly since his most recent cancer surgery on December 11th. The country's defense minister says Venezuela's armed forces will support Chavez and his administration during a possible transition of power. Controversy is also swirling around Maduro's appointment of a new foreign minister this week, backed by an order signed by Chavez. International experts gathered at American University this week to discuss how religion can have an impact on violence in Latin America. Robert Brenneman, the author of Homies and Hermanos, a book on gangs in Central America, discussed his work at the conference. He specializes in studying how gangs allow members to leave, but only if they accept a life in evangelical Christianity. By leaving the gang and claiming to be a evangelical Christian, but really still going to the bars and hanging out with your old friends and doing you know, smoke and pot or whatever, uh, obviously you're playing with Curly if you do that, and if the gang bumps you off, it, um, then they're just doing God a favor. Most of the reformed gang members Brenneman studied are still alive and following their new religious lifestyle. 
A website in Brazil has begun selling profiles of fake girlfriends to men who want to make their former lovers jealous. For $20, the website namorofake.com.br will create a profile of a fictitious girlfriend and post it on Facebook for seven days. Men comprise most of the clientele, but the site will soon offer fake boyfriends for women. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. As we just heard from Kurt, Cuba's new travel policies have many wondering how they will affect the island. We put that question to Professor Bill Leogrand of American University and the co-editor of a contemporary Cuban reader. Here are excerpts from our interview. Ordinary Cubans have wanted for a very long time to have the freedom to travel abroad for visits. Uh, And the government had always required them to get uh, what was called the Carta Blanca, which was essentially an exit visa, uh, even for someone who just wanted to go visit their family in another country, not necessarily even the United States. The government now has done away with that, and any Cuban who has a valid passport uh, with some restrictions is able to go visit abroad. It's very popular. It's something ordinary Cubans have wanted for many, many years, and the government has, has delayed putting it in place. Now they've finally done it. They've delayed putting it in place because they're worried about brain drain, I'm guessing. That's exactly right. Um, The rationale was always that since education in Cuba is free, uh, doctors, engineers, and so on who got free education from the state uh, needed to stay in the country and pay back Cuban society for that education by working in Cuba as opposed to uh, the fear, which was that they would go abroad to the United States and stay. So at the end of the Soviet era, at the end of the 1980s, when you see this change in visa policies in Eastern Europe, this caused the collapse of that particular system or was one of the causal factors. Are are we going to see something similar in Cuba or is this so far removed from that era and so different because it's on an island that um, there's nothing for the Cuban government to worry about? Well, I think they are still worried about the possibility of brain drain, which is why there are some restrictions on on who can leave without some kind of permission. But I don't think you're going to see a massive exodus at this point, in part because countries that uh, Cubans might want to go and visit are going to be concerned about whether or not Cubans might come and not go back. Uh, The United States, for example, uh, denies visitors' visas to about 80% of applicants from countries like the Dominican Republic for fear that they'll overstay those visas. In the Cuban case, because of the Cuban Adjustment Act of 1966, any Cuban who gets to the United States, no matter how they get here, is eligible to stay. So it'll be very interesting to see how the United States reacts to this change in Cuban policy and how many visas we will give to Cubans who want to come visit. This is the big discussion I've heard this week, is this issue of immigration. Since the U.S. is talking about comprehensive immigration reform, many immigration groups are saying, you know, we should adjust all immigrants to be like the Cubans. If they get here, they should be able to stay. And obviously the Cubans don't want to see some regressive policy now. So is this going to be part of our own domestic immigration debate? Well, I think there's no doubt that as we have this immigration debate, the a privileged position that Cubans have had of being able to stay no matter how they got here, legal, legally or illegally, uh, is, is going to be a point of argument. I mean, why should the Cubans be any different than the Mexicans or Dominicans? Uh, my guess is that uh, at some point, 
the Cubans will lose this privileged status and be treated like anyone else who comes to the United States. There'll be a path to citizenship of some sort, but the Cubans, for the Cubans, it won't be automatic the way it's been in the past. Well, we know why there's been this status that Cuba's been a pariah regime to many, many administrations, Democrats and Republicans, for decades in this country. Do you see then that this is also going to change in the second part of the Obama administration? Well, it'll be very interesting to see whether President Obama uh, resumes his efforts uh, to try to improve U.S.-Cuban relations with, with which he began his first term. Of course, we have the problem of Alan Gross, the USAID contractor who is still in prison in Cuba. The administration has said they can't go forward, won't go forward with any improvement in U.S.-Cuban relations until the Gross case is resolved. So that's the, the immediate obstacle in the road. So the Gross case is the immediate obstacle for changing diplomatic relations, but, but maybe not for changing immigration? Well, I, the immigration issue, as I say, I think is going to come up in the broader discussion about immigration and really isn't something we need to negotiate with the Cuban government about. It really has to do simply with the, how the United States treats Cubans who arrive here and want to stay. That's more of a negotiation with with those on the right and with those in South Florida who have particular political points that they want to make about about the Cuban regime, is it not? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, Cuban-Americans, particularly conservative Republican Cuban-Americans, have been historically opposed to any change in the Cuban Adjustment Act that would treat Cubans uh, in the same way that other immigrants are treated. They've always wanted to preserve that special status that Cuban immigrants have. So we'll still see some debate about this. This is, this is not going to be an easy decision as we move forward with immigration reform. No, I think it'll be a very complicated one, as a matter of fact. And, and it's, it's possible that the anomaly of the Cuban immigrant situation uh, could be a real, a real problem in getting a comprehensive immigration reform here in the United States. So that might be the sticking point that, that stops us. Cubans, not Mexicans, that will change the immigration issue. Well, it won't be the only sticking point, I'm sure, but it, but it is an important one. You were in Cuba just a few weeks ago, very recently, and, and saw many changes coming forward. This has been a time of big change in Cuba. Well, what can we expect to see in 2013 with changes in Cuba? Well, the, the Cubans are in the process of implementing an economic reform program that was approved as policy a couple of years ago. Uh, and for the last two years, they've been gradually uh, putting the implementing legislation in place. Uh, when I was there, the Cuban National Assembly was just meeting and adopting a number of new laws, and they have a, a, a number of additional laws that they've taken up, new laws on foreign investment, uh, the, the legalization of non-agricultural co-ops, which essentially means small businesses uh, outside of agriculture, um, and a series, a series of other things, a labor code to deal with the, the new situation in Cuba of people who are working uh, for a boss in the private sector. Uh, what's happening essentially is that the Cubans are following uh, in the uh, path of Vietnam in reducing the, the state sector of the economy, creating more space for private enterprise, private initiative, but trying to do that in a way that um, saves the social safety net that's been uh, such an important achievement of the last 50 years. Also preserves the 
the political power of the one-party state, too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's, there's no question that one of the concerns that the leadership has is how socially disruptive these economic changes will be and what the political uh, ramifications of, of that disruption are. There are a lot of Cubans who are concerned about these economic changes. There are going to be winners and losers. And if you're elderly on a fixed pension, um, if you're young and unemployed, uh, these economic changes uh, could, be, could, could make your living situation worse rather than better. Who are going to be the winners then? Well, I think the winners will be the highly educated people, uh, people who have some access to capital and can use it to start a small business, uh, people at, at uh, uh, managerial levels within the system who will be able to take the skills that they've developed and put them to use in the private sector, um, whereas young people, uh, Afro-Cubans, um, women to some extent, are going to be at risk. So we're going to see some social inequities, greater social inequities than, than have been there for the past decade, and, and some may be race-based. You can already see the emergence of greater social inequality as a result of even the limited changes that have been put in place in the last few years. Uh, and Afro-Cubans have, have really um, uh, suffered as a result of this. In Cuba, you need to, an ordinary consumer has to be able to find a source of, of hard currency um, because the, the ration card and, and the national peso uh, doesn't really get you through the month. Now, if you have relatives in the United States who send you remittances or relatives in Venezuela that send you remittances, uh, then you can, uh, you can manage pretty well. But if you don't have any access to hard currency, uh, your life is tough. And Afro-Cubans disproportionately do not have access to hard currency. Most of the people who came to the United States from Cuba in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s were white rather than black. And so Afro-Cubans are much less likely to have family in the United States who can send them remittances. They're much less likely to live in a nice neighborhood where they can open a private restaurant in their living room. They're much less likely to be employed in the tourist sector where they have access to hard currency tips. So um, we can already see the emergence of uh, greater social inequality, uh, and, it, and it does coincide to some extent with racial divisions. What other important points did you see during your most recent trip? I think the most interesting thing was the proliferation of small business. Uh, even just a year or two ago, um, there wasn't a great deal of, of small business in the city of Havana. Uh, there were some private restaurants, but they were operating under pretty serious restrictions in terms of how large they could be, how many people could be employed, and so on. Most of those restrictions now have been swept away, and, and so you see small businesses of every, uh, of every variety, people um, selling food on the street, fast food, if you will, um, more uh, fancy restaurants, uh, people uh, engaged in service enterprises, fixing bicycles, fixing refrigerators, and fixing automobiles in particular. Um, it's, it's really flourishing, and, and you can see the, uh, the potential economic dynamism uh, that could be unleashed by the government if it's willing to relax some of the restrictions that still remain. Anything else that you think is important for our audience to know, takeaways from your last visit? 
the um, discussions we had with Cuban government officials indicated to me that they are really anxious to improve relations with the United States. They're very focused on um, their domestic issues, their domestic problems, this reform process that's underway. And they would like to get the issue of the hostility between Cuba and the United States off the table so that they can focus their energy and their resources on, on their domestic issues. Um, I think that they would like to find a solution to the case of Alan Gross. Um, but at this point, um, the Obama administration hasn't really been willing to engage in a, a serious negotiation with them about it. The, uh, the administration's position has been that Mr. Gross is illegally detained or unfairly detained um, and that we won't negotiate about his release. It has to be a unilateral action uh, on the Cuban side. The Cuban position is that they're willing to discuss Mr. Gross's case, but they're not going to release him unilaterally. So poor Mr. Gross is caught in this catch-22 of the Cubans saying they want to talk before they'll let him go, and the United States saying, no, you have to let him go before we'll talk. We'll see if there's any solution to that in 2013. Bill Leo Grand, our guest today on Latin Pulse, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I want to finish school. And then go to college. To be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Recently, we visited the offices of Mark Schneider, the Senior Vice President of the International Crisis Group. Schneider's office is just a few blocks from the White House in Washington, D.C. We discussed with him the potential of President Obama's second term when it comes to Latin America. I think there's likely to be uh, a change initiated by the Obama administration with respect to one issue without any question, and that's immigration. I think that uh, the, clearly the past election demonstrated the concern about immigration within the Hispanic community, and the Hispanic votes were very important to the Obama victory. So I would see that that would be one area where it would be win-win. Obama would be responding to his own constituency on this issue. He had promised to do something in his first term. Nothing happened. And it's also an issue that Latin Americans actually raised with him at the summit. Uh, both the initial one and the that last one. That would be the Summit of the Americas. Summit of the Americas, correct. And so I think that that's an issue which uh, he can have, as I say, he can have both domestic and foreign policy positive uh, results. The other areas are those where it's going to be more uh, difficult conceptually to come up with what the answer is going to be for a new initiative from the Obama administration. And what I mean that is there's the issue of how do you deal with Cuba. He's going to get slammed again at the next uh, summit of the Americas and possibly at the General Assembly um, that's coming up, the OAS, in this coming June. The Organization of American States. With respect to uh, Cuba. And, uh, and I think that's going to be very difficult. And obviously, uh, if there's no change in Cuba with respect to the nature of the regime, it's going to be very hard to see an initiative coming from the Obama administration. They're likely to be on the defensive. Um, the area where I think, given the uh, medical condition of uh, Hugo Chavez, uh, we've already seen 
inklings of uh, an effort by the U.S. to indicate its willingness to reach out to the next government in Venezuela, whether that's um, Nicolás Maduro, the vice president of Venezuela, or the opposition, if the opposition candidate were to win and take office, um, that uh, I don't know if there would be any question that there would be a very major shift in the relationship with Venezuela. On Mexico, um, uh, and uh, there are, if you, if you put into the set of priorities for the United States, what's the most important relationship? It's with Mexico. And there is a, some degree of uncertainty about uh, how uh, Peña Nieto would relate to the U.S. I think that has been moved to the side. I think there's a sense now as a result of their conversations and the, the diplomatic uh, engagement that they're going to be looking for ways to cooperate on a whole range of issues, ranging from economic, trade, NAFTA, NAFTA Plus, uh, immigration obviously, uh, and also uh, drug trafficking and the violence in Mexico. But on the latter, again, the United States is going to be somewhat on the defensive. If as a result of the atrocity in, uh, in Connecticut, in Newtown, the United States initiative to do something about gun control, particularly assault weapons, uh, if that's not successful, it's going to be very difficult to uh, move forward on a comprehensive program of cooperation in the area of reducing violence in Mexico because they're very unhappy about the number of guns that come south. We haven't had a real discussion about automatic weapons, semi-automatic weapons going south during the first part of the Obama administration. And in, other than Fast and Furious and that particular um, scandal, no real policy diplomatic initiative, and I'm sure President Calderon would have loved to have seen something like that. No question about it. I think that that's again an area where, if you can uh, say where the Obama administration um, punted, uh, it was on the question of uh, weapon flow to uh, Mexico and Central America, and particularly assault weapons. Um, what it meant was that the Zetas and the cartels uh, wound up uh, in a situation in which they had more firepower than the local police. Uh, and, and, and they've been able to fight these armies in the, in the area to a standstill, to, that, which is amazing. It is, it is. And it's really a, a disaster in terms, again, of relations with the United States when it's clear that a substantial number of those weapons are coming from, from the U.S. And I think that the, this is an opportunity for legislative action which benefits the U.S. and benefits Mexico and Central America if the ban can be reinstated on assault weapons. And equally important, a, a major uh, expansion of registration for any weapons purchases anywhere, gun shows, local stores, online, there needs to be a, a much more comprehensive uh, registration process that enables sharing of information between states, between localities, and with the federal government. And that just doesn't exist now in an adequate way. You mentioned NAFTA and NAFTA Plus, two trade um, initiatives that perhaps the Obama administration can get involved in. 
are there mechanisms that would be part of a NAFTA plus that might be related to gun control, arms control, and, and dealing with the problem of arms going south? Well, in terms of uh, NAFTA, one of the, 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 I think one of the more positive elements of NAFTA was the degree of consultation on every element in the agreement itself. So there's follow-up almost sector by sector uh, between Mexican, Canadian, and U.S. both officials and private sector and labor. And I think that in that sense, that, that kind of dialogue would be quite useful in engendering a common view of what's needed to deal with the problem. But I think fundamentally the driver right now is the recognition, I hope, in the United States that, um, that every measure has to be taken to prevent the recurrence of the mass atrocity that we just saw in, in Newtown, Connecticut. Some people would say that the mass atrocity of somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 Mexicans dead in the past six years is, is something that Americans also need to be more aware of. The Obama administration needs to, to address something that didn't come up at all in the presidential election period in the debates. Um, yeah. How do we create more awareness for this? Well, I think that the, again, this issue is one that, if you recall the Summit of the Americas, um, both President, well, President Calderon, uh, President um, Perez Molina, um, particularly, uh, raised that issue in the private session of the heads of state, and at least uh, it was partly that that prompted the decision to move forward with a review, however limited, of um, counter-drug policy in the hemisphere that the OAS is now uh, involved in producing by the next General Assembly uh, in June. And a big part of the reason for that has to do less with the concern about drugs themselves and the damaging nature of uh, their use, but the violence that has uh, accompanied the effort to control and stop the trafficking. And so you, the kind of violence uh, that you saw, that you've seen in Mexico and in Central America over the course of the past six, seven years, uh, is really what I think has prompted a determination on the part of the Latin American leadership that something different has to be done. And I think that the, uh, the U.S., up until this point, has not yet recognized that, as you said, that this is an issue that the U.S. has to be equally concerned about. The U.S. focus has been on stopping the drugs going across the border and less on the consequences in terms of increased violence in south of the border. But when you see a president like Guatemala's president, who you mentioned, Perez Molina, who is a conservative, talking about decriminalization or legalization of drugs that, that tells you that the issue has pushed much farther than usually what's on the table here in the United States. No question. I, uh, I will say that, that um, decriminalization and legalization uh, are not likely to be uh, immediate actions by anyone. Um, of Other than two states here even, in the United even, States. Even, but only on marijuana. And remember, you're mostly you're, you're most of the flow that they're concerned about is cocaine, uh, coming from uh, Colombia and the Andean region, and it's unlikely to um, 
shift in terms of the the, um, the legal structure affecting that, except in two ways. One is that there's a general recognition that there's a greater need to look at the public health aspect of the, in the entire drug issue, and then to try and find ways to do something other than send every user to, um, to prison. Um, and the second is that the, uh, there's a, a sense that there may be a distinction between small personal use and massive trafficking. And so in many Latin American countries, even today, there, it's not illegal to have a small amount of the cocaine or even, and definitely marijuana, but it has, it's, it's very personal. It's the transaction that is illegal and the trafficking that obviously that permits the transaction to take place. Mark Snyder from the International Crisis Group, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you very much for joining us. Not at all. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>